Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Neanderthal Podcast. You are now tuned into our OITE slash board review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, welcome. We normally actually go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics that we do on a weekly basis, but this is a series within a podcast series um, called our OITE slash our board review series. So we try to go over the high yield topics to get you all ready for the exam as well as just some general orthopedic knowledge. So if you haven't already, click the subscribe button so you get weekly updates whenever we update and upload an episode. And without further ado, go ahead and enjoy today's episode. We're talking some more C-Spine. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Um, so moving forth and getting into some more C-spine trauma in particular, uh, what is traumatic occipital cervical disassociation and its treatment? Uh, that is also called an internal decapitation. Um, yeah. Basically, what that means is the occiput is no longer in intimate uh, relationship with C1, and it is considered lethal uh, if it's extremely significant. And the problem is that it's really hard to detect on x-rays. And so you have to, uh, I mean, a lot of these trauma patients, more so because of acute care surgery and trauma, general surgery and the emergency management of them, um, once they're stabilized, almost every patient is getting a C-spine uh, CT scan and then a CT of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis just to look for any in internal injuries. And so you're really criticizing the C-spine CT scan and you're looking for any sort of subluxation and I'm talking that this can be on the uh, magnitude of just millimeters of uh, just incongruence with the occiput C1 articulation and you really want to look closely at those because if it's missed then I mean their head is no longer attached to their spine and once you yeah. take that C collar off and if they're still intubated or whatever and they get moved or shifted I mean that can that can be very bad for the patient. And so um, uh, the treatment is some light traction to help reduce the dislocation and then an occipital cervical fusion. And uh, one of the surgeons in my residency, we, we did a lot of spine with uh, neurosurgeons rather than orthopedic spine surgeons. Um, but uh, one of them in particular, he was very interested in, in, spine trauma and he didn't do a lot of the other neurosurgical work and so working with him he he had a few patients that he showed us in clinic not I didn't see any in in the actual operating room but he has videos of the fluoro where he attached the the uh head uh contraption and um you could see him just pull slight traction on the head and you can see that uh, occiput to see one just gap open and that's, that's how scary. <laughs> but then you look at the you look at the ct scan in the mri and you're like it's really not horrible and then he points it out where he's like no if you're just looking at this little millimeter of translation you have to be concerned and so then he shows how dramatic of an injury this actually is and uh so you have to have a a, a fairly uh, low threshold to really scrutinize these patients and if you at all 
are at all concerned, take them in for a dynamic evaluation, just like we do uh, manipulation under anesthesia for posterior wall fractures of the acetabulum. You can do the same thing for the C-spine. And, and if you're pulling traction and it doesn't move at all, then you can be more confident that there's no injury. But if it does move, then you're at least in the OR and you're set up and you can go ahead and fuse the occiput to the C-spine. Um, and then there's, uh, a measurement called the powers ratio, um, which is where you're looking at, uh, the, I think it's the, uh, lateral, uh, x-ray, yeah. but yep. you're basically, you're measuring the relationship between the foramen magnum to the atlas. And that is used to look at atlanto-occipital disassociation. And there's a, there's a length where uh, AB is uh, basically the basion, or which is the uh, frame and magnum, is A, uh, to the posterior uh, spinal laminar line of the atlas, which is B. And then the opsithian, which is C, uh, and the anterior arch of the Atlas of D. And I understand that I just said a bunch of words that you're not probably <laughs> understanding. So go ahead and Google it. Cause I can't really describe it. Yeah. It's hard uh, to describe without looking at a picture, but basically you're just looking at the ratio between, uh, the anterior portion of, uh, the frame and magnum and the posterior portion of, uh, C2 and the posterior portion of the frame and magnum and the uh, anterior portion of the atlas and how that r ratio relates to itself and if it's so yeah the the powers ratio if the ratio is greater than one then atlanto occipital disassociation should be suspected yeah uh, let's see here and then moving on uh can uh, occipital cervical disassociation can be acquired or is it always just due to uh, acute uh, trauma? So it can be acquired. This would be due to bony dysplasia and ligament and soft tissue laxity. So this can be seen in patients that have Down syndrome um, as well. So for these patients, you can consider occipital cervical fusion if these patients are myelopathic. Um, but again, just note that this can be acquired. It's seen in patients that have Down syndrome and it's due to the bony dysplasia and, and ligament and soft tissue laxity. Um, now moving forth, and we are now at the Atlas or we have, uh, we're, we've done some of the occipital stuff. Now we're moving a little bit um, uh, caudal in the spine, for lack of better terms, using spine in doctor words here. Uh, we're moving a little bit caudally. Uh, and so what is the classification for atlas fractures? Uh, that's going to be broken down into types one, two, and three. Uh, type one is an isolated arch fracture of the atlas. Type two is a Jefferson fracture, which we'll describe here in a, momentarily. And then a type three is an isolated lateral mass fracture. And those are all just different portions of the atlas. The atlas is more of a ring um, without a distinct vertebral body. So isolated arch is one, Jefferson is two, and lateral mass fracture is a three. But what is a Jefferson fracture? Yeah, so a Jefferson fracture is a, uh, a fracture where you have bilateral fractures of the anterior and the posterior uh, C1 arches, so it's fractures of 
both anteriorly and both posteriorly. So it's like four fracture lines. Uh, and this is typically due to an axial force. And what you look for on x-rays, you look for displacement of the lateral mass. And so what you do is on the x-ray, you look and you measure the displacement. And if the sum of the displacement of the lateral masses is greater than 8.1 millimeters, this is associated with a transverse ligament rupture, which uh, means that this is an unstable, uh, unstable fracture. So again, so one of the things you can do is if you look and you won't be looking at a, you won't be looking at a, at a lateral. This would be more on, you can look at this kind of on the odontoid view as well. And you can measure the displacement of those lateral masses of C1. And if the displacement, again, the sum of the displacement of these um, from the odontoid is greater than 8.1 millimeters, this is going to be associated with a transverse ligament rupture. And this is notes that this is an unstable fracture pattern. Now, um, injury to what structures or ligaments can result in an ADI greater than five millimeters? We talked about ADI a little bit earlier when we were referring to um, atlantoaxial instability in the rheumatoid patient. We talked about that in posterior ADI or this, um, the space for the, um, for the spinal cord. Uh, but what injury to what structure to ligaments can result in an ADI greater than five millimeter? Yeah, and once again, the ADI is the uh, anterior atlantodens interval, and it's testing that space between the dens and the anterior arch of the uh, atlas. And uh, the primary ligaments that are holding that articulation in place are the alar, apical, and the transverse ligaments. And uh, similar to what you were talking about, if those lateral masses are greater than 8.1 millimeters apart, um, that transverse ligament that's holding those structures together has to be ruptured for it to, for it to displace that much. And so those are, those are the primary structures you're looking for. And the transverse one is the primary of the three, the alar, apical, and transverse. And uh, what does long-term stability of burst fractures depend on? Yeah, so it's going to depend on the transverse uh, ligament healing. And I, every time I look up um, or speak about this and like the alar apical and the transverse ligaments, I always got to Google a picture of it. <laughs> just, uh, just like solidified in my mind to remember where the alar ligaments are and where the apical ligaments are. And I mean, apical makes more sense because more the apex going um, cranially. But uh, anyways, back to back to the question. Um the long-term stabilities of these burst fractures depend on the transverse ligament healing. And there are actually different types of lesions of this transverse ligament, which you can note on MRI, which makes sense because the ligament is a soft tissue structure. So a type one lesion of the transverse ligament is when you have a mid-substance rupture of the transverse ligament. Then the type two lesion is when you actually have an avulsion of the ligament from the bone. So that is the difference between a type one and a type two lesion of the transverse ligament. And again, stability on these burst fractures depends on that ligament healing. And um, so what are, um, what are the stable atlas fractures then? You know, we're still talking about the atlas. We talked about Jefferson fractures. We talked about the isolated lateral mass or that type three. We talked about isolated arch fracture, that type one. Um, but what are the stable atlas fractures and what are, the, what are their treatments? 
the uh, for the type one and the type three, the isolated arch and the isolated lateral mass fractures without significant instability, um, and even transverse process fractures, they're going to treat those guys in a C collar for six to twelve weeks, and it's a pain <laughs> uh, for the patients. Unfortunately, oh yeah, not to wear a C collar for that amount of time, but if it's that or risking instability and par- uh, paralyzing the patient and quadriplegia, then uh, I think it's worth it. <laughs> and that's, oh, yeah, and I that's, keep really it on. The, that's the realistic discussion you have to have with these patients because they will fight it. They will hate it. And sometimes despite us knowing the long-term effects of it, they just, they don't buy in. And so you have to really be on their side and, and convince them that you are truly looking out for them and, and their best interests. And uh, and then finally, with those Jefferson fractures, the type two burst uh, injuries, um, if they have intact ligaments, meaning that that uh, uh, less than 8.1 millimeters of displacement of the lateral masses in relation to the dens, um, those are considered stable because you have an intact transverse ligament. Uh, you can treat those with halo immobilization. And the reason why it's a little bit more uh, uh, of a treatment than just using a C collar is uh, you have to, uh, you, you know that the actual Alice is a burst fracture. So it's fractured in multiple locations. And so it is just inherently more unstable than an isolated single arch fracture or lateral mass fracture. So you do have to put them in a halo for about the same amount of time, six to 12 weeks, unfortunately. Um, but then you have the unstable atlas fractures. Um, what what are their treatments? Yeah, so the unstable um, atlas fractures are pretty much anything that has greater than 8.1 millimeters of displacement, right? And that's what we mentioned a little bit earlier, looking at that abdominal view, and especially if you have a Jefferson fracture, you measure the distance um, of displacement between the lateral masses on both sides, and you add them together. And if it's greater than 8.1 millimeters, that is indicative of an unstable fracture. Uh, if we want to get, just talk a little bit more about some more numbers, in um, ADI, um, uh, Alice Dens interval greater than 3.5 millimeters indicates a transverse ligament injury. And what we spoke about a little bit earlier, maybe two or three questions earlier, is that an ADI greater than five millimeters indicates injury to the transverse and ALAR ligaments as well as apical ligaments. So you know, if you think about it, it makes sense. You know, the, the greater that that spaces of more soft tissue structures have been injured. And so you treat these unstable atlas fractures, you can treat them with bed rest, um, with halo conversion if the reduction is maintained. Um, you can also treat them with a C1, C2 fusion, as well as an occipital cervical fusion. So there are a couple different um, options to uh, to treat these. Now, if you ask me what would make you choose a C1, C2 fusion versus occipital cervical fusion versus that and this, uh, that I'm not 100% sure. We need to get a spine fellow on here to, <laughs> to help yeah. us out with that. Um, but that is that is to my to my knowledge of uh, kind of what I, all I know about that. Um, and uh, since we we touched a little bit about C1, uh, what, let's talk about C2. What is the blood supply to the axis or C2? Uh, so it actually has two separate uh, blood supplies. And uh, the important part about that is actually how it forms uh, 
throughout adolescence, um, you have two separate ossification centers where you have the base and the apex. And so the apex is going to be fed by the internal carotid artery and the base is fed by the vertebral artery. Uh, and so that's, uh, and that's how we uh, associate those like uh, as the uh, kids and teens are developing in that area actually fuses between the two, but it, each ossification center needs its own uh, blood supply for that. And uh, a lot of the C-spine motion is really not uh, understood uh, unless you uh, really dive deep into it. I mean, you think that a lot of the motion comes from the uh, entire subaxial spine, but uh, yeah. is that really true? No, no, it's not true. And, you know, it's different when you talk about flexion, rotation and lateral bend. And it's crazy how much motion you get just from the upper couple vertebrae. So most of your flexion or at least 50% of your flexion comes from your occiput to C1, um, that articulation. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's a lot. So, you know, you think about when you're fusing somebody, you know, you're fusing C1, you got to let them know, like, you're going to lose half of the amount of flexion that you have. Um, most of your rotation is going to be between C1 and C2, or between the atlas and the axis. And then most of your lateral bend is going to come um, for actually from the subaxial spine. So 60% from your subaxial spine. So I think this comes into play when patients are, you know, maybe undergoing an ACDF, you know, for cervical myelopathy or radiculopathy or whatever it may be. And then they'll ask you, well, how much of, you know, how much of my motion am I going to really lose? I'm just going to be staring straight ahead for the rest of my life. You'll say, no, you may lose maybe 10, uh, 10, 20% of your flexion, but most of it actually comes from the occiput to C1. And you may lose a little bit from bending from side to side. Uh, but most of your rotation will be maintained. Most of your flexion will be maintained, but you may lose some of that um, side to side bend uh, from your neck. And uh, I guess it's probably a little late. I need to, I need to work on, on, um, on ordering these questions a little bit better. Um, but uh, what is the dense? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it keeps people on their toes, you know, Never know. Uh, but the, uh, the dense is the, actual odontoid process. It's the part of the uh, C2 or the axis that articulates with the uh, atlas. Uh, it's that kind of bony protrusion straight up the odontoid process. And then there's, uh, I, I touched on that there were two ossification centers for the odontoid process. Um, what is an os ondoid? <laughs> <laughs> An os odontidium. <laughs> yeah, the, the extra os around the odontoid. That's what we'll refer to it as. Um, but yeah, no, so this could be due to a, a failure of fusion like you were talking about because you talked a little bit about earlier um, the blood supply to the axis uh, or C2. And so this can be due to a fusion failure or old trauma. And one of the things is you'll see this when patients come in, it's ED patient, and 
you might see this on a, on a film and they may call it and you know you're trying to figure out whether this is a, an, an os or whether or not they actually have an odontoid fracture and you may get a ct scan and maybe it's in an obtunded person or obtunded patient that can't tell you whether or not they have neck pain and some of the things that you can look for is uh, round fracture edges on imaging so anything round or smooth those are things that may cool you into it is maybe an um an os odontoidium and uh, patients that have this contact sports is contraindicated. I had to look a little bit more into that just to see exactly why. Um, I'm not sure. Do you, do you have any idea? I'm not 100% why it's, why it's indicated um, if you have an osodontoidium, but I, that is what my, I uh, read. Yeah, my, my hunch would be that because it's not a bony fusion between those two centers and it's more of like a equivalent like fibrous union it's maybe inherently more unstable or weaker than a true bony fusion and so just i mean it puts them at an increased risk it probably doesn't uh matter yeah. a lot of circumstances but uh unfortunately it just takes that one hit in the wrong manner to, to cause significant damage so it's probably just preventing that because it's inherently weaker due to the fibrous union. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that makes sense. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the nail Ortho podcast. Hope our OITE slash our board series reviews has been helpful and that you have told at least one other person. If you told one, why not tell two? And if you told two people already, why not tell three? <laughs> well, until next time, we will see you probably in a few days.